0: We'll mm-hmm. be And welcome to the podcast of TechEU. This is our episode number 142, recorded on November 12th, 2019. Today we will talk about potential antitrust news, about Apple and Google's prospects in the European Union, uh, the newsletter tips and tricks, and much more. We will also run a conversation with Ken Willem-Klausen, the founder and CEO at the Neobank Lunar. I am your host Andre Degler, joined today by our research lead Natalie Novik. Hey, Natalie, how's it going?
1: Hi, Andre. It's going well. How are you?
0: Yeah, all good. Thanks. Uh, I'm in uh, Brussels uh, this week, uh, spending uh, the week uh, talking to our uh, well-beloved uh, colleagues uh, uh, who live here and enjoying the windy and occasionally sunny weather. Perfect. Very much looking forward to uh, seeing you next week. By the way, in Helsinki.
1: Me too. I, I There's so many exciting things on offer at Slush this year. So many parties, so many different gatherings, get-togethers. It's a great time to check in with everyone in the community before it is the Christmas time and things calm down for a little bit.
0: Right. And the list of side events for Slush is as big as ever. It's, <laughs> it's impossible.
1: So if you happen to find us there somewhere, <laughs> um, please do say hi. But if you don't manage to, totally understandable because it is just such a crazy uh, event and one of the the most exciting events of the year.
0: Indeed. Actually, there's going to be a pretty good way to find us, I think. So if you're listening to this, if you ever uh, stumble upon a uh, podcast booth that is uh, uh, branded by uh, Google Cloud for Startups, Try to take a look inside because most probably one of us will be there uh, interviewing uh, some of the most interesting speakers of the conference and those interviews will be uh, then uh, published uh, as our interview specials. So take a look and uh, hopefully we will have a a way for you even to listen to uh, those uh, interviews in real time. Now, it is time to move on, I suppose. We have a lot of uh, stuff to talk about today. And uh, I will start with my story that is again about the EU being concerned with the big bad tech. And namely, the EU seems to be concerned about Google and Apple again. So speaking at Web Summit last week, uh, the competition commissioner Margrethe Vestager outlined the issues that uh, the commission may take with the way Apple Pay operates in Europe. And uh, with the acquisition of Fitbit by Google. So first, let us take about the Apple Pay, and then uh, we will talk about uh, Google and Fitbit. So Apple Pay problem is that the service has been in the antitrust spotlight since no later than August, that is in the European Union, uh, when the commission sent around a questionnaire for merchants. And uh, here is a quote from Reuters, which says that it has seen this document. The quote begins, The questionnaire asked if companies were under a contractual obligations to enable a certain payment method and also if such contracts included conditions for integrating Apple Pay in their apps and websites. Regulators wanted to know if Apple has rejected merchant apps as incompatible with the terms and conditions for integrating Apple Pay in their apps. The quote ends. So, that questionnaire happened in August, and last week, Vestager also mentioned uh, the issue again, uh, saying that, I quote, we get many, many concerns when it comes to Apple Pay for pure competition reasons, the quote ends. She also elaborated later that, I quote, again, people see it becomes increasingly difficult to compete in the market for easy payments, the quote ends. So there is no actual formal investigation open into Apple Pay at this point. But last year, Vestager also said that she might investigate Apple Pay if she received formal complaints. Now, there's definitely at least one formal complaint, and that's one coming from Spotify, if you remember that story. And potentially, there could be now more uh, from the merchants uh, surveyed uh, by the commission. And as far as I understand, uh, Vestager's new term in the office will start on December 1st. So it is still possible that we will hear more on this topic before the year ends now let's move on to google part and uh, namely the eu seems to be concerned with its acquisition of fitbit for 2.1 billion us dollars that just happened recently As a consumer, I have to say, I'm pretty happy about the deal. I would really like to see more interesting hardware and smartwatch hardware in particular coming from Google. But I'm still angry at Fitbit for shutting down Pebble. I think those were actually the best smartwatches ever. I'm actually wearing one right now as we're recording this. And uh, I think it was not a great idea that Fitbit bought Pebble and uh, shut it down. Now, Uh, Let's get back to Google, though. At the press briefing at Web Summit, uh, Vestager did not comment on this deal specifically, but when asked about it, she said that in general, I quote, we have a concern if companies merge because of data, the quote ends. So, And one concern outlined by Vestager is whether this kind of deals creates a barrier for new players to enter the market and consequently stifle innovation. And the other problem, of course, is privacy, because it is not quite clear what kind of issues may arise as a result of Google getting the treasure trove that is if it health data. One way or the other, the acquisition in question still requires approval from the EU regulators, and I'm not entirely sure about the timeline here, but the official announcement mentioned that the deal is expected to close somewhere in the year 2020, so probably not much is going to happen in the very near future, so we're going to have to keep our eyes open for that. Now, Natalie, you are a Fitbit user, aren't you? Uh, what do you think of all this? Are you already deleting all your data so that Google cannot uh, get their uh, hands on it?
1: So I am a Fitbit user. I've been a Fitbit user for a long time. I'm not so concerned about Google acquiring Fitbit's data because uh, because of the reliability of some of the products, sometimes I think the data they have isn't that great. So for example, my... Um, Fitbit watch um, for the last it, it gave me quite a quite a serious burn a couple of weeks ago and I haven't been wearing it and even before that I, I w- it was having a lot of problems syncing some of the the um, the data wasn't getting connected to the phone it was drawing the battery down on my phone so I hope that maybe the Google acquisition will mean that some of the products become more reliable. But I'm not too concerned about Google having control of the Fitbit data because I think their geolocation data on me is probably a lot more granular and tells them a lot more about me. And seemingly (laughs) as I have Google Nest products kind of surveilling my house and all of the basically the whole Google suite is in operation over at my place.
0: Do you have a camera, a Nest camera as well?
1: I think we have 3 of them here so I'm going to I mean they know quite a bit about me I'm already down the rabbit hole
0: Fitbit is the last thing for you to worry about then But yeah but I think there're still a lot of concerns being voiced about the health data being obtained by Google uh, through Fitbit but I mean I, I also don't uh, don't care that much but uh, this is my general stance I suppose like I don't really I don't value my own for example data as dearly as uh, uh, some people do, I suppose.
1: Yeah, and, you know, that's kind of a concern that I'm hearing from a lot of people. And we'll talk about it a little bit in my my next story um, about Huawei. But people aren't quite as concerned about privacy if they're getting a service for it that they appreciate. I think a lot of consumers really do understand that there's a trade-off. And uh, with Google, there's also this assumption that, you know, maybe... I'd rather have Google having hold of this data than someone like Facebook or Amazon. And Amazon is a company that is making a very strong play in the health market right now. So this might be something that maybe it's a lesser of several evils.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. Anyway, I am waiting and I am looking forward uh, for new hardware coming from Google and Fitbit collaboration and uh, on whether the European Union is going to actually block the acquisition. (laughs) But I I honestly really doubt that. I don't think it's going to happen, but it is an interesting thing to talk about anyway.
1: I think if Google takes one bit of advice on, if you're listening, Google, please stop using proprietary charging ports for Fitbit devices. That's something that I think is part of why I did get this kind of serious burn from my Fitbit device, but also made it really difficult when I was traveling and lost one of them in transit. And I basically had to get a third party charger from a unknown um, Chinese website because the proprietary chargers are really expensive. Uh, for something that really kind of we've we've have moved on from that.
0: I'm not really sure that it's possible though to make like a normal USB, like micro USB or USB Type C port in the watch because you want a watch to be uh, waterproof. Kind of going kind to of create some uh, limitations on the tech, I suppose.
1: I think Google can do it, so I'm gonna put it put them up to it.
0: Okay, let's see what happens within a year. I think we will hear some announcements. Now, how about uh, how about Huawei? What about it?
1: Yeah, so this week, I wanted to delve into this question about Huawei. And it's something that I'm sure many of you are hearing. And it's a company that's been in the news a lot. And there's always so much going on all the time. Uh, You might not know all of the details about what's going on there. And I didn't know either. So I just wanted to take some time to look at all of the, the recent news about the company. But just to recap in short, Huawei is a Chinese technology conglomerate based in Shenzhen that makes smartphones, hardware, and 5G information technology. And the company is subject to a US trade blacklist, which effectively locks the company out of the US market. The allegations against Huawei by the United States are complicated but largely stem from U.S. accusations that Huawei technologies are used as a backdoor for Chinese spying and that the company has been involved in stealing intellectual property. The firm's 5G technology is also very cutting edge, which some have speculated concerns stem from the difficulty for others to compete on the 5G market. This fight between Huawei and the United States played out in real time on stage at Web Summit last week in Portugal, where the U.S. Chief Technology Officer Michael Kratzos brought the Trump agenda to Lisbon. In his remarks, Kratzos called out China and specifically Huawei, where he said, quote, Huawei installed communications technology equipment at the headquarters of the African Union. Their computer system was hacked and data was transferred to servers in Shanghai every single night for five years, end quote. Huawei, who was also in attendance at Web Summit, said in response, quote, we utterly reject the false claims against Huawei by Michael Kratzos, the chief technology officer to U.S. President Donald Trump, today at the Web Summit in Lisbon. Singling out Huawei, Mr. Kratzos repeated a number of allegations that were hypocritical and manifestly false, end quote. U.S. concerns about Huawei have been ongoing, But after the U.S. issued its trade ban against the company, Australia and New Zealand responded with similar bans of their own. But Europe here is in a tricky situation, not wanting to upset their U.S. allies, but also recognizing Huawei's innovation in 5G technologies. Because of this, and due to the U.S. trade ban, Huawei has been been making more and more inroads into Europe, actively courting potential customers for their 5G technology. Last week, Guo Ping, Huawei's rotating chairman, took the stage at Web Summit to call on developers to help usher in the next generation of 5G technology and also hosted a special Huawei Developer Day. Huawei has already signed over 30 commercial deals with European customers, building ultra-fast fifth-generation networks. Europe has long been a market for the company's consumer hardware. Europeans bought over 26.3 million of the company's smartphones last year. Europe has been doing their due diligence. Last month, releasing a report on 5G tech that highlights potential telecom security risks from, quote, non-EU or state-based actors, end quote, but does not call out Huawei by name. At the moment, the EU's Network and Information Systems Cooperation Group is currently developing a toolbox of measures to identify further 5G risks, some of those from providers. This should be released by December 31st of this year. On the country level, last month, Germany released their own new 5G regulations, which do not explicitly bar Huawei from participating, Germany has been pretty clear about this. Back in April, as the country was developing the framework, Germany's federal network agency formally stated that no equipment supplier, including Huawei, should or may be specifically included from participating in the country's 5G. The announcement was criticized from a geopolitical perspective, suggesting that by not excluding Huawei... Germany is, quote, choosing China over the West, end quote, and will weaken Europe's chances of standing up to Beijing on the international stage in the future. But it follows findings and practice from other European countries. In April, Belgium's cybersecurity agency found no threat from Huawei technology. And in February, Vodafone and Huawei jointly built a 5G experience zone in Barcelona during the Mobile World Congress. The UK, while expressing their concerns, has also rolled out banning the company from participating in the country's 5G for the time being. So back to our main question, are these concerns real or imagined? Is Europe under serious threat from Huawei's 5G technology? Well, in January, a Huawei worker in Poland was arrested on accusations of espionage, Much of the case remains classified, bringing up even more questions, but not much has been disclosed in that case. According to the research I've done, and you can't point to an example of Chinese buying using Huawei technology in Europe, at least none that has been disclosed. Answering the Huawei question, is it safe or not, will be integral to the deployment of 5G in Europe, which is a European priority. Europe, which has been lagging behind Asia and the US in their 5G rollout, does not have comparable 5G technologies of its own. Huawei builds a considerable amount of core infrastructure for 5G, network switches, gateways, routers, and bridges, everything that controls how and where data is sent. And trust in these components and in their producer will underpin the rollout of these products across the continent. For many of these things, there aren't that many alternative providers. Despite the assurances from some European countries that Huawei's 5G is safe, or at least shouldn't be subject to a ban, the U.S. accusations have been successful at spreading doubt and concern. Huawei has been mounting its own defense and charm offensive, uh I and some people I know have been getting a lot of promoted ads on Twitter from a verified account called Huawei Facts, which is run by the company. But the existence of the account and the facts it's promoting, in some sense, creates more speculation and mystery rather than helping build trust. So this week, I put in a considerable amount of research into this question. I think I might have read about half of the entire internet, and every account I could find on this question about is Huawei safe. And I have to admit, regretfully, I'm left with more questions than answers. According to Huawei Facts, Huawei has never spied on anyone. Huawei Facts also tells me the company holds over 85,000 patents and is the number one patent holder in Europe. Thousands of European consumers trust the company's smartphones and hardware, and several European governments have also been strident that Huawei's technology should not be banned from Europe. But Because of the U.S. blacklist, there continues to be a lot of speculation around the company and also some misinformation as well, which is difficult to verify. Ultimately, it leaves European consumers worse off. Lack of clarity on the safety of these products has helped slow the adoption of 5G into Europe. And the narrative and the words of the U.S. CTO elevated to the main stage at Web Summit last week continue to bring more confusion and obfuscation. While the jury is still out, I'm not sure it was a great idea to bring the U.S. trade war to one of the most prominent stages in Europe and in the entire technology world last week. I wish I had a more conclusive answer for you all here, but the lack of one speaks of the magnitude of this being both a case for business, but also of geopolitics. And I think that it's an important one to consider on the horizon, because these questions go beyond just one company. They go beyond Huawei. And as technology and our digital lives become ever more global, requiring solutions from everywhere to facilitate it, these questions are going to become even more numerous and the dimensions ever more greater. Previously on this podcast, we've talked about the concept of digital sovereignty and some of the implications of that. So whatever decision European governments will take on Huawei will tell us a lot about how this future will move forward.
0: Wow, this is really complicated.
1: Yeah, that (laughs) I think sums it up pretty well. Um, Really, really challenging question and something you don't want to make a rash decision on, but it really involves so many different actors and so many moving parts.
0: Indeed. And yes, speaking of smartphones, while you were talking, I actually checked the uh, like market shares for uh, 2019. So yeah, as of the second quarter of this year, I think Huawei was the second most popular uh, smartphone maker in Europe. Uh, that is if you look at uh, smartphone shipments. This uh, th- this is not a mean feature. So basically, it comes uh, after uh, Samsung and before Apple.
1: Yeah. And, and so they sold a lot of smartphones last year and they're selling a lot also this year. But it does look like they've taken somewhat of a hit from the trade ban; that the sales are down from what you might have expected from last year's sales.
0: That's true. Now, it's a pretty timely thing, though, especially for me, because uh, next week we're going to slush. But the week after, I will also be in Riga at the 5G Territory Forum. And this is actually... The event, I think, for uh, uh, Europe to talk about uh, 5G implementation and uh, any questions that are connected to it. So I will definitely uh, take some time to talk to my interviewees about uh, Huawei and uh, its technology and what is the take of some of the most, say, prominent uh, players in this industry.
1: So I'll be looking forward to that. It sounds really interesting.
0: Yeah, I hope we can. We probably won't get like a definitive answer, but uh, maybe at least something. Now, it is time to move on to the interview of the week. And uh, this one is going to be a conversation with uh, Ken Willem Clausen, the founder and CEO at the new Bank called Lunar, uh, which at the time of the recording was still called Lunar Way. And uh, the recording was uh, done at the Tech Barbecue Conference uh, uh, in Copenhagen a couple of months ago. So let's listen to it together and we'll be back in a few minutes with the recommendations. <music> Hello, this is Andre Degeler reporting today from Copenhagen for Tech EU, and uh, I am catching up with Ken Vilhelm Clausen uh, from Lunarway. Hi, uh, Ken. Thanks a lot for taking the time yeah, to hi talk. Eric. Thanks for having me. So, uh, first of all, I mean, you have been in the news with Lunarway uh, by raising 26 million euros just recently. But what is Lunarway, and uh, why did you need the money?
2: You know, um, to answer the last question, first, we need the money for getting a license, a banking license. We've been at, um, um, applying for banking li- license throughout the year. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the, the um, regulatory capital for obtaining that banking license. So the question about well, what we are, you know, Lunaway is a, is a challenger bank, but instead of operating uh, with a horizontal focus where you have a lot of territory to cover, mm-hmm. we operate on a vertical model. So we are building an in-depth banking solution here in the Nordics. So uh, so from what you know from challenger, banks where they're doing things differently and so on it's that with a Nordic play
0: okay so and what do you mean by vertical in this case do you want to just offer more products
2: yeah. So, uh, first of all, the Nordics is a bit um, unique in the sense that it's the most profitable banking landscape throughout the world. 80% of the population only holds one banking account. So, you don't have multiple banks, you have one. And there's a monopoly on the infrastructure. So, you know, as a challenger bank up here, you cannot go into the infrastructure. You need to be a regulated Nordic bank to do that. So, to offer those national products and national accounts, you need to be in the infrastructure. Yeah, that's that's the end depth part of it.
0: Okay. This is really interesting. So, What do you do differently uh, from the challenger banks out there, other than being vertically focused? Mainly that, first of all, because I'll give you an example.
2: Here here in Denmark, uh, as an example, it's governed by law that all citizens and businesses must have a national account it's called NIMP console, right? You need a NIMP console. And so NIMP console, you get your tax returns, you get your educational funds and so on. So just to be that vertical bank is a challenge on its own. So that's where it all begins. And then uh, I don't think we're too different from other challenger banks. We maybe share the same mindset. We're looking more into the likes of the, all the incumbents. And on that, we have a more open approach where we partner up with specific partners on products. So we can give you that full-fledged banking experience, but with, with a variety of partners. So what stage are you at now in terms of the In some sense, I would say we are day zero because we just got the license. So this is actually the first time we can really tap into the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, we were operating on a partner model. So now it's a matter of kind of rescheduling everything and then really only go live in January with that full integration and all the products. But then when we go live, we're live with with loans, with insurances, even with mortgages um, going into the next year. So we'll have that full bank uh, suite of products
0: when we roll out. And how will you be different from any other bank in the Nordics uh, offering the same thing? Just just on that, that we have an open approach to it so we can get the best products from each vertical.
2: So mm-hmm. just t- take mortgage as an example. We'll probably have the cheapest mortgage out there uh, for lending. We can do instant credit scoring and instant lending and instant payout. That's unheard of in the Nordics doing uh, a new set of financial products it could be like could be in a a retail installment on a subscription-based method uh, an installment product post purchase so you go into a store you buy a tv set application prompts you for hey we saw you just bought a tv do you want to break that down into installments click the big green button so products like that also for your daily life
0: Mm -hmm. okay so the nordics that's okay understood you can clearly will have a certain competitive edge, but uh, how about the rest of Europe? Are you going to expand there at some point, and uh, uh, what, will, what will be your unique selling point there? I think, you know, first of all, the banking license is quote-unquote
2: European, so you can passport it to other European yeah, exactly. countries. But for us, it's a matter of conquering the Nordics for the next couple of years. You know, we can build an in-depth bank in all Nordic countries, all four countries, and if we do that, we can build a really, really profitable business on that. I think the difference is also, do you want to have 10 million customers, like 10 million that sign up for your application, and 18, 20% of those actually using the product for a specific purpose, like when you travel or or when you're trading, or do you want to have a million customers with an 85% active user base? And we are to the latter.
0: Right. So uh, this kind of goes uh, very much against the grain of the normal uh, startup mantra of uh, getting global from day one and trying to cover as much ground as, uh, as you can. Was it hard to raise money with this vision then? As hard as it gets.
2: As hard as it gets. You know, look, talking to, uh, to investors in the space of banking, like half of the, of the potential VCs are out when you're talking about banking. It's a balance sheet model. They don't get it. So you have, you have 50% left. Of those 50%, you can divide them into three categories. One that only one to invest in global place, Then like you have, you have two, two parts of that left, right? One already did their investments and other challenges. So you maybe have 15% of all the VCs globally interested in a a regional banking play. Uh, So it's a tough sell. It was was a tough sell.
0: (laughs) And now you're you're already busy uh, raising another fund, uh, another funding round?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, uh, scaling as a bank with a balance sheet model also requires capital. So it's not a matter of liquidity. We'll have plenty of cash in the bank, but we need capital also to structure the balance sheet and to do lending. But I think, to be honest, I think it really changed the perception from investors' Of us as a company with a license in hand, mm-hmm. because now you have a re- you have a tangible asset, you have a banking license in hand. This was the first clear banking license in Denmark in ten years' time. So it's you know unheard of to to receiving a banking license. So you have a banking license in hand in the Nordics. You can use that to European territory. That asset has really opened the doors for investors. We we didn't talk to for the last round. So I think fingers crossed fundraising going forward is another is another history than it was in the past right why is it called lunar way you know a couple of reasons for that it's it's all based around reaching for the moon Mm -hmm. like doing the impossible right uh we have kennedy quotes on the walls you know we're not doing it because it's easy we're doing it because it's hard you know good friends of mine um uh u.s based fintech vc told me look ken building a multi-territory multi-product Bank is as hard as it gets. And I think that's, you know, the same landing on the moon is it doesn't get harder than that. So that's the main inspiration.
0: Right. So I think I read somewhere that actually prior to getting this uh, license, you were working for four years on this. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So what what did you, what were you doing? Uh, Good
2: question. I, I, you know, time flies when you're having fun. I think, you know, a couple, couple of steps. So first when we launched, just here in the Nordics, we were only live in Denmark. It's a really small country, you know, below six uh, 6 million population. So building product and, you know, taking in smaller rounds, migrating into the infrastructure without our own license, took some time. Getting the approval of the regulator to operate on that model took 18 months' time. Then we saw we were the first with a, a payment initiating license prior to PSD2 here in Denmark. So... A bunch of stuff. But uh, I, you know, I, I would have probably, if I rolled back time, I would have wished for us to do uh, where we are today in a, in a 24 months uh, period of time instead of uh, 48, but you know, that's the way it goes.
0: And you already had customers before you got the license, right?
2: Yeah. So we had, uh, well, prior to the license, I don't know, you know, 50,000 users right now. We have plus 115. We're seeing 15,000 new customers on a monthly basis. Mm-hmm. This is still prior to actually going deep in the infrastructure. So I think, you know, we're getting as many customers per month as you would see in a normal country in the Nordics moving from bank to bank in a year. So so if we if we just continue the, the performance today, we'll catch a million banking customers within two years' time.
0: Okay. So what are the milestones that you have for the next, I don't know, five, ten years? In the first, our infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So,
2: you know, just migrating what we have today on our own platform, on the, our own license. That's a three, four months period of time we're in right now doing that and um, pushing hard out in the Nordics, going live in Finland as the remaining Nordic countries. And then, you know, scaling the business from there. Obviously, there's underlying milestones to. Um, monthly active usage, retention rates, revenue targets. Also, you know, it's, we cannot just keep on pouring money at the fire. We also need to have some revenue. Right. So, you know, bunch of KPIs on that.
0: Right. Okay. Thank you so much. That was it for my questions. Uh, Ken, thanks a lot for taking the time to talk. And sure. uh, good luck doing all yeah, that you just mentioned.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Hello again. Welcome back to the podcast of Tech you, and uh, it is time to stuff. That we want to recommend you to read or listen to or consume in any other way. So, my today's recommendation, I wanted to stay on the topic of Apple and uh, the anti-competitive practices uh, this time. And last week it was revealed uh, that the Mac App Store has started rejecting cross-platform apps that are that are built on a framework called Electron. So if you don't know Electron, it has become very popular over the past few years among the developers because it basically allows to maintain only one code base, simply speaking, and that would be the code, reason for the web. And uh, then this code can be sort of packaged in apps for different platforms, right? So if you have on your desktop apps like Spotify or WhatsApp or Slack or something like that, those are actually good examples of the use of Electron. They are basically web technologies used on desktop uh, with this sort of a wrapper or framework that Electron is. Now, what Apple did is it quietly began to reject apps that are using Electron uh, on a pretext that uh, the framework is using what is called private APIs. And these APIs are basically reserved for internal use in the operating system. However, Apple itself gives very few alternatives to those APIs and also Electron and many other tools and apps have been using those private APIs for ages and it had never been a problem before so this does not look like a very consistent uh, sort of policy decision uh, from uh, Apple. And this step taken by the company is not really just an isolated incident but uh, it looks more like a part of a bigger play to take something of a monopoly grade control over the ecosystem and that goes both for the desktop and mobile. So if you'd like to dig deeper into the problem, I do recommend starting with a piece on Medium's One Zero publication written by Owen Williams. And here's a brief uh, quote from there. The quote begins, Apple's subtle anti-competitive practices do not look terrible in isolation, but together they form a clear strategy. Make it so painful to build with web-based technology on Apple platforms that developers won't bother. The quote ends. So check out the piece to better understand what's going on. And it's not just about electronic it's about uh, many other things. It is a walled garden of the Mac App Store now. And uh, if you want to do some digging, I will leave the link in the show notes. Natalie, do you have any particular take on this? You're not a Mac user either, right?
1: I'm not a Mac user. And partly it's because Mac products are just way too expensive for me because it would just be way too cost prohibitive for me to switch over to app, all Apple products. But we've talked about the Apple's anti-competitive practices on the podcast so many times in the last year. And it's something that, that really does concern me. I really appreciate Apple's approach to privacy and how they they really seem like they care for their users in that way. But some of their actions really, really do um, make it quite challenging for competition, especially for startups or anyone that's trying to make it. It's tough.
0: But also, as far as I can see, this particular issue is even farther uh, from being investigated anywhere at all uh, than the Apple Pay thing that I was uh, talking about before. I think the outrage is just kind of Getting uh, some momentum right now, but still, as, as long as it mostly concerns developers, it's going to take uh, some time for it uh, to get to any antitrust, anti-competition uh, sort of regulators. So, Natalie, what was that that you wanted to talk about in your recommendation part this week?
1: In my recommendation for the week, I wanted to leave you with something that you might find useful if you're producing content. Sharing content, either if it's text, videos, or whatever, is something that helps build trust in this online world. And it's also a great way to learn, to get up to speed on different things, and also to demonstrate your mastery in a given subject area, and not to mention to build a community of like-minded people around you. One of the best ways to do this is through a newsletter, and Rodolfo Utel of Remotive.io a company that's based in Paris, but really they're a remote company all about the future of work and remote working. They have a great newsletter. And in a tweet shared earlier this week, Rodolfo shares how they put together their newsletter for 25,000 subscribers two times a month. We'll link to the tweet, but in a thread, he goes over the process of what it takes to find top content, to curate top content, and how to distribute it through multiple channels. Which brings me to my next recommendation, a piece by Sarah Knuckle, and she's a VC at Dawn Capital. And she's also put together a great newsletter called Fem Street on the topic of women in tech and diversity and venture capital. She's written how her newsletter went from zero to 5,000 subscribers by putting together a post where it talks about all that she's learned from doing the newsletter for the past two years, which includes some great takeaways for anyone that's looking to get started doing a newsletter. And if you're looking for some great newsletters yourself, do check out those two links. And if you want to try some great newsletters, go look at Remotive. That's R-E-M-O-T-I-V-E dot I-O and Fem Street, which is F-E-M-S-T-R-E-E-T. But not to mention, of course, we have a great Tech EU newsletter, which is done every week by Andre. So if you're not subscribed to that, be sure to subscribe. We've done over 300 different newsletters at this point in the past five years at TechEU, and it's a valuable way of getting great content across and bringing the community together.
0: Thank you, Natalie. Thank you. This, this was a, this was a great plug for our newsletter. I'm, ve- I'm very appreciative of that. But yeah, indeed, we do send a newsletter every single week. Every Friday, we put together all the deals and all the most important news from the European startup ecosystem. And I would really appreciate if you subscribe to it and let us know what you think. If you have any sort of suggestions at all. Now, as for the podcast, this is it for today's episode. I do hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. If you are not a subscriber yet, by any chance, do subscribe today on your favorite podcast app. We are present everywhere. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, that is sound pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at Andri at tech EU and Natalie at tech EU. Natalie, thank Thanks a lot for joining today, balancing two dogs on your lap once again. I'm looking forward to seeing you next week at Slush.
1: Same, yeah, and I'm looking forward to getting out of this house with these two crazy dogs.
0: Thank you for listening. Enjoy the rest of the week and talk to you next Wednesday. Bye bye.